Let's do it now. Turn up the volume nice and loud. Because we are controlling transmission. You're in the mix with Lil Drummer Girl. With your host, Dawn Marie. Hey there, my rockin' drumsters. Welcome back to the Little Drummer Girl. I'm your host, Dawn Marie Mutel, and today I am super, super stoked because I have a very special friend on the line, Gerardo Jerry Velez. He is best known for playing the congas and drums while performing at Woodstock. Yes, the original Woodstock with, guess who, Jimi Hendrix. How cool is that? He is a veteran percussionist and drummer who's performed in over 200 celebrity recordings and played with cats such as David Bowie, Sir Elton John, Stevie Wonder, Destiny's Child, Stevie Nicks, Shaka Khan, Mark Anthony, and countless others. He's also a member of the jazz fusion band Spyro Gyra, which combines jazz, R&B, funk, and pop music. Jerry also has his very own special event company called Gerardo Velez Productions and has produced over hundreds of shows, including since its inception in 1981, they create galas, concert festivals, and events for clients such as the New York Stock Exchange, Comedy Central, HBO, Donna Karen, Miramax Films, and Bank of America, just to name a few. He's also created concepts, choreography, and has acted as a musical director and promoted several establishments in Las Vegas, like the MGM Grand, Hard Rock Hotel Casino, Harley Davidson Cafe, Lexer Real, and the Dow Resort. Gerardo has seven Grammy nominations under his belt, along with six gold and platinum records and three Amex Gold Reel Awards. There's so much I want to ask him. So without further ado, let's welcome Gerardo Jerry Velez to the show. Hey, Jerry, how's it going? Thank you, folks. Thank you. So it's going great. Thank you. I love that guy. I didn't know I did all that stuff. That's fantastic. <laughs> you have so many accolades. I can't even begin, and I'm so stoked that you're here. So thank you so much for taking the time out to be here. I really appreciate that. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm with the little drummer girl. The little drummer girl. That's, you know, we got to support the drummer family. You know, it all started from drumming and dancing and, you know, pounding on the Anything we could, and that's how it all started. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? So tell yeah. me, what or who inspired you to start banging on the drums and the conga? Well, in my family, I'm a Puerto Rican descent, born and raised in New York City. And my family, uh, you know, we went a lot to Puerto Rico and California, a lot of places from when I was very young. So we've always danced a lot in our family. And uh, we have uh, an uncle who's no longer with us, but he had an orchestra. and used to bring his orchestra, and they always they play in Latin music, and he would tell beautiful poetry in Spanish and have everyone mesmerized. And I said, wow, this guy is cool. So his percussionist let me sit on his knee, and I played congas, and it really came out, you know, they said, well, this kid is good. It probably sounded like, you know, terrible. But, you know, they were encouraging this little kid, me. So I said, oh, I must be good. So that was uh, about nine years old. But I, my sister and I had a dance act, and I was six and she was ten. Her name is Martha Velez. And she had five albums out on Shire Records. Her first album was with Eric Clapton, Rich Mitchell, Brian Alder. Her third album was produced by Bob Marley, which is only oh, non-Jamaican production. It's Martha Velez, and she was in the original cast of Hair. That's my sister. She was, she was always an achiever, always doing things, always being creative. 
and always, you know, fighting the stereotypes of women in show business and so on and so forth so she can maintain her dignity and go after and, you know, and really learn her craft of acting, singing and dancing, which is our forte, as well as a director and producer and a writer. She did a lot wow. of things in the system. Very that's proud amazing. Of it. But that's how I, I got involved. It was just an easy, you know, I was singing show tunes because my sister listened to all that. And, you know, I grew up in the Bronx and guys would go, what are you doing singing all those show tunes, dude? <laughs> I said, hey, my sister taught me how to do that. Don't worry. You know? <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I think it's a cabaret, my friend. You know? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> are you from the Bronx? Are you yeah. like from Fairyland over here? No offense, my friends, of course. Okay. But, uh, yeah, to answer that question, and then that, that was nine, I started playing percussion, but I wasn't ever in a professional band where I actually got paid until I performed with Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. That was my first professional performance. No freaking way. Yeah, where I, got, where I got paid. I know, I know. Everybody said, you got to be kidding. I said, well, no, because I always jammed with everybody. I made my own money, you know, I was, oh, I was one of those guys that, you know, it, it it all happened to me very quickly at 19 years old, 18 years old in New York. Wow. So I had all the, you know, all the ends to get into all the clubs, you know, the girls, the drugs, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that we created back in those days. I had access to everything. So all the guys hung out with me. And that's not how I met Jimmy, not under those circumstances. But what I'm saying is that because of that, I didn't say, hey, I don't have to be in a band. I said to myself, when the right situation occurs, I will be ready, and I will see it. Okay, now you got a big ego, G, people would say. I said, no, that's, you have to have an ego, but besides that, this is what I feel is my destiny. So, you know, hey, you know, we're young, we're full of passion and verve, right? So there was a venue in New York called Steve Paul's Scene. Steve Paul was the manager of Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter. He brought them up from oh. Texas, introduced them to Jimmy and me, and that's how it's their career got started through a guy named Steve Paul. He had a nightclub in Manhattan called The Scene. Cool, right? The Scene. And it was on 46th Street between 8th and 9th, and it was downstairs. There's a Chinese restaurant there now, but it's downstairs. It was kind of like, you know, the cave where the Beatles used to play and all that, which was low ceilings. You're in a basement and everyone played. So I went there with a bunch of my friends, and we were sitting at a, a row across of, there must have been eight of us or something like that. And uh, I went up and I was playing with Rick Derringer, who was, he, he was with his band. They did Hang On Sloopy at that time. Uh, Hang On Sloopy. Big hit. And then, uh, I sat in with him and Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck was there that night. Oh, nice. And we sat in and we jammed. And after I sat in for two songs and I put my gear to the side, you know, I got off and some, some other guys got up to play because it was a jam session. When I went back to my seat and I sat down, I got a tap on my shoulder. And I looked up, and it was Jimmy. He said, hey, man, that sounded great. You want to come up and play when I perform? <laughs> I said, sure, man. So, you know, people question me. I said, that's cool, you know, because well, I felt because of the instrumentation I played, I didn't think playing with Jimi Hendrix was going to be the right thing for me. And to mm -hmm. me, I didn't care who he was. I'm more important than him or anybody because this is my career. So I felt, yeah, let's see what happens. You know, it plays loud guitar. I play acoustic instruments. I come from a slightly different perspective. I'm more like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, maybe Sons of Champlain. That kind of music has a lot of percussion-oriented rock and roll in it, which I love. Right, and I, right. love I mean, I love all kinds of music, but Jimmy was more energy. I love that, too. So, but I never, I never anticipated if I would, I never thought 
and then by any means I'd fit into his trio concept. So anyway, we jammed. It sounded great. There was one little jam with Jeff Beck, and Jeff Beck was, you know, really angry. Jimmy was such a fluid player. Jeff is a, a is a blues player, extraordinary blues player. But that's it. You know, he's not. He doesn't have anything that Jimmy had, and that angered him on stage. And it was really like, uh, you know, Jimmy's like, hey man, you could tell like. Jeff Beck was putting the guitar in Jimmy's face and like, and Jimmy's like, Jimmy's like, man, like, you know, and it was like, oh man, he he was so frustrated. And then after we're done, we sat down and said, man, that's great. I'm going to the recording studio later. You want to join us? I said, sure. So I brought all my friends and, you know, we had a big party in the recording studio and Buddy Miles was there and, you know, he arrived later and a bunch of other people arrived and. You know, people were coming in and out all the time, and we were in Media Sound, which was uh, one of the most uh, active and prestigious recording studios in New York. It was on 57th Street between 8th and 9th. It later became La Barbat. I don't know what it's called. I was going to say, was it La Barbat? Wow. Okay. Yes, it was La Barbat. I think yeah. they call it Providence. There's another. I don't know yeah, what's Yeah, I think it's Providence now. now or something like that. Yeah, but then it was right after it was recording studio. So there was gold and platinum records all over the place. So when I went to see Jimmy, um, you know, uh, we jammed for 10 hours that night. And then afterwards, I went to the lounge, you know, we used to smoke cigarettes. So I went to the lounge to smoke a cigarette, and he came in. I said, man, that was great. Said, yeah, man, that was really great. He says, well, what are you thinking? He said, listen, I'm starting a new concept. I'm, you know, I'm bringing up my two buddies from the military, a rhythm guitar player and a bass player that I like to work with. Uh, and, uh, you know, probably Buddy, I want to do something different that adds a lot of more interesting music. And while we hung out, we became really good friends, and we used to go, through the village and go down to East Village and, you know, down to a place called Slugs that was really like a very, very bad neighborhood in the Lower East Side and Alphabet City where you usually didn't go, go into that area unless you were from that area or right. going there to get drugs, <laughs> either one. Uh-huh. But uh, to go and listen to music, it was, you know, it's pretty, yeah, most people didn't do it. But Slugs was one of those places that had very cool avant-garde jazz. And we used to go listen to uh, Sun Ra. We used to listen to, you know, just really out there musicians uh, that were doing stuff that was really experimental. And nice. this band that we he created that I was a part of, because really it was he and I at first. And then we moved up and then he was putting the band together and we moved up to Woodstock. He got a house outside of Woodstock. He said, you know, I'm going to develop the band and come on up and they're going to be doing this event later on in the, in the summer. They want us to be a part of, but I want to rehearse this new concept. So he and I went up there and he had his big house in uh, Phoenician, New York. Um, and uh, there was, uh, you know, two levels to it. And on the upper level, no, excuse me, on the lower level, as you entered, there was a, lo- a staircase heading upstairs. And then there was, a, you know, to the left was a kitchen, a dining room. To the right was like a, a living room foyer area. And then there was this room that we used as a music room. It was a really the large room and has the highest ceilings. So that, and there was all kinds of instruments and records and turntables and anything that can play. And, you know, it was, it was that kind of room. We just, would, you know, get buzzed and just go around the room and start playing all kinds of instruments and throwing on, uh, records. You know, you had bins full of records and we just would, all right, close our eyes and put our hand in and come up with a record, <laughs> put it on the turntable and play along with it. And that's yeah, how magical. we came up with science. You know, yeah, that's how we came up with ideas. 
So he had a room on the second level. He had a room to the left of this large bathroom. And then there was a, a, a hangout area, a very small hangout area that we used to bring people. And we had private parties up there. And then my buddy Kenny Rankin would come and he'd sit in. And, you know, we'd just play acoustic music up there. And uh, Jimmy, uh, my room was on one side, like I mentioned, and Jimmy was on another. So, you know, at the end, he'd go to sleep. I'd go to sleep the next morning. Hey, we got to get up to and I, One of us would set alarm, wake the other guy up, you know. And we lived there for a while together, back and forth to New York. And then later on, Billy. And Larry Lee came up, and they were friends with, of Jimmy. And they're, you know, they were good church boys from the South. And, you know, they didn't do drugs. They didn't party with us or any of that stuff. You know, they were kind of like deer in the headlights. I think they had PT. <laughs> no, I think they had post-traumatic uh, stress. No, no, from world. No, they were in Vietnam, all these guys. So they were like oh, deer in the headlights. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no, it's all right. It's because of that. They were in the military. They came out of the military. Oh, wow. And now they were all these crazy hippies, you know. Right, right. Me and Jimmy and all these... Wow. Woodstock, you know, woo, people, and they were like, <laughs> I don't know what stuff. Where did you drag us into, man? And they basically stayed in their rooms until it was time to practice and rehearse. And Mitch came later on. So Michael Jeffries, who was uh, Jimmy's manager, was not a nice guy. So who's this kid, Jerry Velez? I don't know him. Why do you want him in the band? Jimmy says, I love the way he plays, and he's staying in the band. Because I could hear it through the wall as they were arguing, like as if I wasn't <laughs> on, the other, on the other side of this thin wall listening to everything. But he didn't, he didn't give a crap. I mean, this guy was not a nice person. And wow. if you read the history of Michael Jeffries, you'll see. Uh, hmm. So then he said, I got this other percussionist you to check out. And that was Juma. Juma, you know, Juma Sultan. And Juma played more of an African style. I played more of a rock to Latin style. And uh, we all hit it off, and it was great. And Juma was, you know, this, uh, he wore those beautiful African robes, and I always called him the African prince, because, you know, he wore the, the dashikis and the, you know, the hair thing and the head. And it was like when that all happened, like everybody was finding their roots. You yeah, know, that's yeah. why after that, I, I said, all right, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Velez is gone, and now Gerardo, which is my real name, I'm going to call him, you know, I'm going to use Gerardo. Because, you know, after all the, you know, craziness that went down up to a certain point, I had to leave and then I said, okay, I'm changing my whole life. And that's why I left Jerry Velez behind and I became Gerardo Velez. And, you know, that's when we started Spirogyra, which was really the first uh, fusion group, which was like what we were trying to do with Gypsy, Sun, and Rainbows, the Band of Gypsies, because that's what our band was called, Gypsy, Sun, and Rainbow, Band of Gypsies. I came up with Gypsy, Sun, and Rainbows. Jimmy came up with Band of Gypsies. So if you go and you look at the Woodstock movie, you, you know, we argued over it. Not argued, we discussed it all the time. And, you know, and I said the Band of Gypsies is kind of bland. I said, you know, you know, it was all that time of sunshine and, you know, sparkling. Right. And gypsies, sun and rainbows. Now, woo! So he liked it. So if you notice the Woodstock movie, you'll go, you'll see when Jimmy started, he said, hey, you know, we're Gypsies, sun and rainbows. just the Band of Gypsies. And he turns around and looks at me you know, basically he says, okay, I said it, dude, you know, there you go, there you go. You know? That's the kind of brother he was to me, you know. So if you look at it, that's how the band of gypsies started. It was not the trio. You know, people say, hey, hey, man, was, you know, the band of gypsies was the trio, man, of Buddy, Billy, and Jimmy. Well, let me tell you. Yeah, Billy, Buddy was going to be in the band. We weren't, know, we were seeing how Billy worked out. The reason we wanted to use Buddy is, not only because Buddy was a great singer, but he was a great pocket player. He played groove. Mm. Mitch Mitchell pe played 
jazz. You know, he played jazz, and that's what was the cool thing to Jimmy's contrast, which made their chemistry come up with that, those great songs. He wasn't wow. a pocket player. He filled up all the space. But when you add me and Juma, he didn't want to relinquish any space to us. So it sounded like a big cluster of, you know, mm-hmm. of blah, 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 blah. He never, you know, he came like three weeks before the festival and he was pissed off. He wanted, you know, the, the old, he just wanted to come and play the experience music and go home and do all these crazy people, you know. <laughs> and uh, like we, we got along, but not great. And, uh, right. you know, we always got along after, right up until his death. I saw him a couple of weeks before he died. To him, we were a bunch of nonsense, and Jimmy should have just stayed with the trio. And I said to him, we should have hired Buddy, but Buddy couldn't do the gig because he was doing his own band, blah, blah, blah. So after that, we were rehearsing with Buddy and Billy and myself and, and Juba. We were recording all the time in the studio. And then when Jimmy had a basic electric Ladyland studio, Mm-hmm. Not open to the public, but open to us. We would go in there and record, and every night we'd go there, and Eddie Kramer would be in the recording booth, and, you know, there'd be some kind of wildness, or Steve, you know, Stephen Stills would show up, or this guy would show up, or Jim Capaldi, you know, uh, or Stevie Winwood, different people, all different kinds of people showed up. I can't even remember half the people, because I didn't document it, I just lived it, you know. Right, and I was right, and it was right there in the say. village, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Right there in the village. And I, you know, I was a New York boy born and raised in the village was my backyard. So, mm-hmm. so that's, um, that's how I met Jimmy. And that's, that's how we got awesome to Woodstock. <laughs> so I didn't, like I said, I didn't play professionally. I, you know, and then he started paying me, but you know, through rehearsals and stuff like that, when I was, when I was up, he said, you know, I got to pay you like a band member. I said, Fine. I was already making tons of money. I was, you know, doing things I shouldn't have done, but I was making a lot of money. money. <laughs> That's all he could give me was that in the music because I already had everything else on lockdown in New York. So for me, you know, and before everything was regional. New York had its own world. L.A. had its own world. Chicago had its own world. We really weren't as connected as we became through the years. But so each area was able to develop their own style, like Chicago blues, like Kansas City blues, you know what I mean? Different right. feel for these musical styles. Like, uh, so we ventured, Jimmy and I ventured into, and I say Jimmy and I because, look, of course it was Jimmy's thing, but he respected my opinion, and he, we worked on ideas, and jam at the house, you know, that's how we started that right. song. Oh, wow, I love it. Uh, yeah, and then a bunch of other things. I, mean, I never got credit. I never got paid for the music. I didn't care. Yeah. When Jimmy passed, I said, okay, and I went out with my life because, you know, I lost my bro. I didn't know anything really about the business. I wasn't, you know, like I said, I, that was the only band, the only experience I had in a band. So, and it also, Woodstock was my birthday. August 15th was my birthday. It was my 22nd birthday, and we played on the 18th. So I arrived the night of the 15th on my birthday. I never slept. I didn't sleep for two weeks before that, and I didn't sleep for a week after that. So, yeah. That's how we ran. And then we sleep for 10 hours and do another three weeks. Yeah, we sleep for 10 hours and do another three weeks. So, 
Those were the times. I can't believe it. Uh, I so please, any other questions? You, I'm, I'm rambling now. I do. Yeah. What would you say maybe was one of the wildest moments that you might have had, either playing or not playing? Oh, boy. Oh, let me show Oh, I got to tell you a funny thing. I got to tell you a funny story with Spyro Gyra. So Spyro Gyra, you know, which I was original member of the band. We started in Buffalo, New York. You know, it was out of nowhere. We had a hit right away. Uh, it was jazz fusion. We were all college students in Buffalo. We had a hit. Uh, and, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, uh, I can tell you later how we did it. Well, basically, I'll tell you, 16 labels turned us down. So we wow. put the music out on our own. Uh, Jay Beckerstein, the leader of the group, and Richie Colander, his partner, who were the driving forces behind the group, they uh, put out, uh, we put out 3,500 records. They sold right away. There's a, there was big record stores called the Record Theater. And the guy who owned it lived in Buffalo, and he was a regional distributor called the One Stop that all the little stores would come to to get their bond, their, their, you know, their, basically, he was a middleman that had all the records. You came and you bought it from him at a discounted price, and then you sold it at a higher price, of course. Sweet. That's what music stores did. So we had a network of how to sell it. So we sold 10,000 records in this guy's store, and he said, wait a minute, these kids are selling 10,000 records. I should sign them. Wow. So he signed us to his label, and, uh, you know, and a uh, shake or something was Christine, Richie, and Jay made beautiful records with a guy named Jeremy Wall who did a lot of arrangements. And, uh, you know, he was an original guy with those three. And then, you know, we were all the original band, myself and a bunch of other guys. So, you know, we helped formulate what the fusion sound became because we were selling more records than big jazz acts, you know. And here we were, these college kids who were writing great music and, you know, we were on the pulse of what people wanted. So when we went, you know, we had a record and said, now you're going to start touring, boys. Now you're going to go, you're going to go to Tipitina's in New Orleans. That's where you're going to start your tour. Wow, that's oh, a long nice. drive from Buffalo, New York to Tipitina's <laughs> in New Orleans. We're going to do, we were so excited we could barely sleep the whole way. Wow. We get to Tipitina's. There's nobody in the audience because no one knew who we were. Our records weren't popular in New Orleans. They were popular oh, wow. up north in California. So there were six people in the audience and eight people on the bandstand. Aye, aye, aye. So we actually introduced the audience to the people personally. And everybody <laughs> laughed and we played for those six people. And we said, the hell with it. We're here. We're playing. So we played for six people. Afterwards, we get into our, tru our buses and we go on our way and we stop at a Cake and steak. That's what they have down there. It's called like cake and steak. We stopped there in the middle, you know, late at night. And it was like between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Baton Rouge, ah. Louisiana. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, Alligator Road, they call it. We're driving through Alligator Road. Anyway, we stopped yeah. at this place. We order. They bring some food, just a little bit, coffee and stuff. And then the lights go up, blackout. And the girls all shouting, go, oh, my God. Lord have mercy. Oh my God, what's going on? There's no lights. Oh my God, there's no electricity. Everybody, you got to go. You got to go. And we're going like, what the heck? You know, we didn't have flashlights. You know, no one had, we, when we got flashlights, excuse me, 
you know, no one had cell phones or anything. They couldn't open right. the registers because the registers just became electric at that time. So oh, all the wow. registers were locked, right? So we dropped down. This guy dropped down 10 bucks, 20 bucks. I mean, we left more than we should have. And we said, hey, man, sorry about your problem. We're out of here. Money's on the counter. We left. Right? And one of our guys, the drummer, Eli Tonikoff, left his uh, bag with, you know, with, uh, his address book with all his stuff in it. And you remember how important oh, the address no. was back then. Oh, was yeah. your whole life. <laughs> that was your life. You lose that, you're done. It's like losing your That's computer right. today. You're done. That's right. That's you know, right. or unless you're on a cloud, you're done. So... We went back. When we arrived, the lights were on. State troopers were there. The girls were inside. Just, there they are. What? Well, hey, we're here. We're back. We came. No, those are the guys. They left without paying. And we said, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, we pay. We pay. We pay. So there was this few typical southern state troopers with the guts. You know, they haven't seen their toes in 20 years. Mm. And they should have a little piece of straw stick in their mouth, you know. <laughs> they got a gun on each side that they haven't seen their oh, hips in who knows how long. And they go, okay, now hold on, y'all. Everybody just oh. back up a little bit. And I said, oh, oh man, this sucks. So I said, these young ladies said, if y'all left without paying your bill. And I said, and we all said, no, no, we pay. I left 20, we left 10. Ladies, you know, I, they, oh, no, I don't know nothing. I just never left without. I ran into the back, and I didn't know what to do because I don't know people have guns here. People do all kinds of things down here that I'm not used to. So I, I closed the door after everyone was gone. There was no money on the counter. So we said, we left money on the counter, said the sheriff. Oh, said, saying, I don't know what happened here, boys, but I see there's a bill, an outstanding bill for y'all. So y'all are going to have to pay that outstanding bill. So we said, we just, oh, okay, okay, we'll pay, okay, okay, we'll pay. I don't know, it was, you know, it was a bunch of us. It was over 100 bucks, 150 bucks, which is probably like 600 bucks today. Right, right? today, and yeah. A long time ago. And uh, so one of our guys came back in, and he was furious, came back in the truck. Now, we're all like, what the hell's going to go? A backup car came, had his oh, lights wow. on, like, what's going to happen, man? We're going to be like, you know. They're going to take us into the jungle. They're going to take us into the swamp and we'll never come out. Yeah, so really. all of a sudden, our guy comes in. We have a guy. He was a big guy. And, you know, we used to kid around. We called him Orca because he was as large as a whale. So we called him Orca. So when Orca came back into the restaurant, he said, gosh, he's cursing like, like a state, you know, like a trooper. Man. Like, What's up, man? He said, there's a guy out there, man. I jumped onto our truck to open the truck to get a flashlight so I could come back in and, and, and help. And as I jumped off the truck, he had a shotgun in my face. Oh, my gosh. And he oh, said, don't move. And I said, what the hell are you doing? I said, you city boys ain't going nowhere. Now get in that restaurant. Oh. So he goes, Orchid goes in the restaurant with this guy following him with a 12-gauge shotgun. So as he enters, the, the state trooper says to the guy, now, didn't I tell you? Go ahead now. You put that gun back in your truck. Now, I tell you. I tell you, now, take the bullets out. Take the shells out of that. Now, you know you shouldn't do that, Rupert. You know you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to pull your arms out of some stranger that you don't know. What happened if you would have shot this poor boy? Oh, my God. Oh, well, go put your car, gun away. My guy was going to kick this guy's butt because the guy was a lot, you know. Oh. Now, he didn't care. You know, who cares? The guy pointed the gun. He's a New York kid. He's like, we're ready to fight, dude. So, 
the state trooper pulls around and says, I think you better, I think you boys better get on to your buses, pay your, pay your bill, get on your bus, and head on out of town. And he said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. So we jumped the car and we headed out of town. That was our first tour. Welcome oh, to Touring for Spyro Gyro. Makes you wonder about the music business. <laughs> That's bizarre. Here's one with Jimi Hendrix. We were in, we we partied like for days, and here we are, it's like six o'clock in the morning. The sun's coming up. I lo- I love to ride horses. He had two horses. He didn't ride, so I would ride all over the place. I said, "Come on, Jimmy, let's go for a morning ride." I don't know. And I come on, come on, come on, come on. Finally, he comes with me. So I saddle up the horses, and you know, if you don't hit a horse in the stomach as you're tightening the cinch for the saddle, uh-huh. they expand their stomach. So when you put the cinch on, if you don't hit them in the stomach for them to go like that, it gets loose when they, you know, suck in their stomach. Oh, no. I forgot. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm whacked out. (laughs) What do I know? (laughs) So I put Jimmy on the horse. You know, he couldn't get up himself. I give him a boost. I put my hands together. Throw him up on the horse. He's holding on to the horn and the hair and the reins. And he looks, you know, like totally. And he has a complete Jimi Hendrix outfit on. Just never a guy who was just in the jeans and T-shirt. Oh, no. He had a velvet scarf on. He had a fringe shirt on. He had velour. I don't know, velour, maybe velvet. Bell-bottom pants with a big, big, beautiful turquoise belt with, you know, with silver and turquoise, it came, you know, it cost a gazillion dollars somewhere in New Mexico and that's what it's, you know, the hangout wear, right? So, I get on my horse and I said, okay, follow me. We go about five steps and I block and he falls and I turn around oh my God. and the, the saddle, you know, the, the horse just went sucked in his stomach the saddle went loose, and Jimmy just went and fell in a pile of horseshit. A pile of horseshit with his outfit on. I couldn't stop laughing. I couldn't get off my horse. I'm crying. My stomach is my stomach is folding up because we never ate, so I had nothing in my stomach. I'm like, oh, this hurts. My God, this is so funny. You want to me? You got me turning up over here. I want to get you. Get me out of here. So I got him up, man. I brushed, I, I washed him down. Don't tell anybody, man. We're not gonna ask. Don't fuck up, Jimmy. Oh, excuse me. And I couldn't stop laughing. I just couldn't stop. I just, I'm so sorry, man. I oh God, it's my fault, man. I swear. But tomorrow, let's do it again. Do it again. Are you kidding? So, That's too funny. Yeah, oh that God. was a Jimmy I'm just story. picturing it, and then just you got me in stitches over here. My eyes are tearing. Good. <laughs> that's too funny. <laughs> yeah. That's a great story. Oh yeah. my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for yeah. speaking of Woodstock. I know you have a festival coming up to celebrate its 50th year. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. Now, a lot of people, and, and probably your listeners as well, have heard many, many things about the big Woodstock with Michael Lamb, Woodstock 50th, who was going to be in Watkins Glens, and, you know, disaster after disaster. And a lot of people thought that was the only Woodstock happening, the only event happening, but that's not true. The actual site at Bethel Woods, New York, is having three days of concerts, not a festival where people sleep over. It's a concert. You come and it'll be four or five bands, you know, four or five hours of great music. You get back in your car and you go home. The first night they're having 
uh, Ringo Starr, second night Santana, third night John Fogarty as the main act. They'll have a bunch of other acts. They'll sell out. I'm going to be performing on the 9th, 10th, and 11th of August in West Jefferson, North Carolina at Saloon Studios Live. It's an incredible 800-acre facility on the foothills of North Carolina, a few hours away from Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, it's there putting $40 million into building an incredible recording studio, live venue, uh, eight-camera shoot, uh, editing suites, directorial suite. Uh, it, sits, it sits 150 people for dinner. Uh, they just built an outside stage for $250,000. That is a state-of-the-art stage. And that's where we're going to do uh, the weekends of music that will honor those who performed at the original Woodstock in 1967. So at the Woodstock we're doing in North Carolina called the WE2019.org. You go to that, WE2019.org. That's us. That is Saloon Studios Live. And we have, like all the older acts, we have Melanie, we have... um and it's John Sebastian. We have uh, Vanilla Fudge, uh, Jefferson Starship, um, uh, Family Stone. Um, oh, God, the list goes on and on. And, you know, folks, if you're listening and you want to know what's going on and you're in that area, please come down. It's going to be a lot of fun on both weekends. In between, we're going to be partying there, hanging out, uh, working on, you know, recording. So we're going to be doing some documentaries. We're going to be streaming content. Constantly. So if you go to we2019.org, you can get on the subscription service for $20.19 to subscribe and then a small fee monthly after that. So we're going to have stuff on there that no one has seen because we have original HD footage from Johnny Winners, the last tour that Johnny Winners, Rick Derringer, and Edgar Winners ever did was in Europe, wow. and we have all the HD footage of that. Uh, we have lots of footage of uh, me and Jimmy. We have lots of footage of me with Spyro. We have lots of footage of me with Elton John, with David Bowie, with, you know, uh, with everybody. It's Gorbachev, with Queen Nora, with uh, ex-President Clinton, with ex-President Bush, with, you know, on and on and on. That's what I did with my event company. So wow. after nine, well, I started promoting Spyro Gyra in the, the Caribbean in 1981, when we were very, very successful at the top of our game. So I would coordinate shows throughout the Caribbean. And then I started doing uh, shows all over because I love to do that, coordinate, come up with the concept, get in, put the money in, you know, get all that stuff and have a successful event where a lot of people come. And the energy that you create at these shows, you know, if you go to a concert and the energy that everybody has, it's, you know, it's like going to churches. It's the church I go to, that's for sure. And that's my religion. That's the altar is the stage. So what, well, when the music changed, as it did turn the corner for Spyro Gyra, I said, ooh. And uh, for my own band, Rico, which I had with a guy named Richie Canada, who was the sax player for Billy Joel, and Billy Joel said, hey, Rico, play something. Richie, Richie Canada was the original saxophone player, and he has a band with two other of the original players, Liberty DeVito and another oh, guy. Know. And Yeah, and they're called the Lords of 52nd Street, and they have a guy <laughs> that looks and sings, yeah, right, that looks and sings just like Billy Joel. It's almost eerie. 
Wow. It's a great show. You got to check it out. I sit in with them. I also sit in with the David Bowie alumni band. You know, we've had Sting sit in and um, we have Bernard Fowler singing with the Stones. He's now, you know, he's been with backup singer for the Stones for 30 years. Corey Glover, lead singer for Living Color. Uh, Joe Sumner, uh, um, Sting's son, uh, is a great singer. Um, a lot of people, just, you know, on and on, all the great guitar players that worked with. So all these guys, it's an alumni band. Like, I, I worked on Black Tie, White Noise, and I did a lot of recording and playing with David over the years. So that's how I'm a part of it. But, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to tour with them more in 2020 because Woodstock thing will be over, especially in, in the U.S. We're doing some dates in Europe for Woodstock festivals and the like. But anyway, getting back to when the, tur- the corner turned, I started to get more involved in producing shows. So I said, listen, the event business in New York is a good business. So I hooked up with some uh, Wall Street guys, and they went in and, and got the door open for me to come in and find out what Wall Street needed for their event. So the, for our first event was a huge event for the Mercantile Exchange, which uh-huh. has all the people that deal on the Mercantile Exchange as part of their uh-huh. association. So through that, I got a bunch of clients from the Mercantile Exchange. Then through that, you know, the Security Traders Association, which is for those type of, of traders on Wall Street, do that. Then I, uh, we started doing work for Dick Grasso, who was Mr. New York Stock Exchange at that time for about six or seven years with Dick. And that was very successful. We did the largest outdoor event with her SAP, which is the European German software SAP for commercial oh, yeah. use. Yeah. And we did their largest event on Wall Street. I came up with all the concepts. We, uh, Friday nights when everyone left Wall Street, we, came in with uh, semis filled with sand, created a full regulation size sand volleyball court. We also uh, made an amusement area. Uh, I had staged several different stages. I had 15,000 balloons, another 10,000 t-shirts, another 6,000 uh, caps strewn uh, stretched across in these bags across Wall Street. In the morning when people arrived, oh, wow. they saw Little Anthony Imperials. At lunchtime, when they came out for lunch, they saw the Dixie Chick. In the oh, evening at, cool. at 4.30, yeah, when they got out from work, it was cool in the gang, and we ended with celebration, celebration, good oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> and all the balloons dropped, all the T-shirts, everyone was, oh, yeah. it's funny when you wow. see these multimillionaires uh, fighting over T-shirts and caps, you know what I mean? They That's could buy awesome. the whole the, your building, but they're fighting over T-shirts and caps. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they're just like chicks like everybody else. <laughs> Huh? I, I wish you were doing that when I worked on Wall Street. That would have been great. Oh yeah, well, that after nine eleven, it all changed. That's it. Yeah, you, know, you can't yeah. you can't go to any of those buildings without everyone being clearance, everyone's information, everyone's social security, everyone's right. background check. No, no, it's insane. Really, every truck has to be, you know, which ones are coming at what time and who's driving them, and you know what's on the truck, and on and on and on. Before you just drive in, hey, how you doing, Joe? I got five trucks. You know, you're calling me. I got five trucks coming in. Okay. What size is Boom, 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 boom. All right. Later. You know, I had my guy who coordinated all that, but that was basically it back then. Now it's. Sure. It's a whole other story. Yeah. Bill, I can only imagine, especially doing events. I can't even imagine. Well, I was invited to Europe, to Russia, and, you know, you got to jump through hoops to go to Russia now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going like, you know, I don't know if I want to go to Russia right now, but mm-hmm. anyway, I'm not going because I'm not going. I, I planned on doing something else, which is on September 14th, I will be in Tuxedo Park, New York, uh, 
with the Jimi Hendrix Foundation, which we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, I hope I answered that question. And uh, yes, you, you know, have. I love okay, it. Okay, good, good. <laughs> Yeah. It's just amazing. I did hear about the Jimi Hendrix Foundation, and that really caught my attention because I didn't realize it existed. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the Jimi Hendrix Foundation was started by Al Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix's stepfather, who uh, once the uh, once he was given the estate, Jimmy's estate worth $150 million back then, uh, wow. Then, you know, he was a postman who made $22,000 a year, and now he has all this money, uh, and he didn't know what to do. So some people came in and helped him. Some people ripped him off. And then finally, his daughter, stepdaughter, Janie, took over. And when he passed away, she became in charge, and she and her husband run the estate now. So the father put, before he passed away, put together the Jimi Hendrix Foundation for people who worked with Jimmy for Jimmy's half-brother, Leon Hendricks, and some of other Jimmy's relatives. So that was in place, and they started to do some, you know, some work in the communities. And then there was some legal issues with Jamie and the estate, and each time she tried to take the foundation to court, she lost. So this past year, she just gave up, and that, that's it. So she really had us suppressed because, you know, she has a lot of money, and she has a dime, and we had a nickel. So, you know, you can lose in court just based on not being able to attend or not have a lawyer defend you. So we got through all that, and now we're doing a lot of events. So at the event in West Jefferson, North Carolina, at Saloon Studios Live, we will have a presence, excuse me, for the Jimi Hendrix Foundation. We will be selling T-shirts, caps, I have some incredible posters that are 25 years old that I did in New York. It's a huge picture of Jimmy and I. It's one of the most iconic pictures that everybody knows of Jimmy and I on Woodstock with our fingers in the air just after the Star Spangled Banner. So that, you know, that was the most iconic shot at Woodstock. Jimmy playing the Star Spangled Banner. Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm standing right behind him. So, nice. you know, right place at the right time. So, you know, in my event company, I did Wall Street, and then I started doing financial institutions like Bank of America and Chase and Credit Suisse and uh, Bank Paribus and insurance companies like AIG and IGA and, you know, huge, huge corporations. I was, you know, doing very well, and I was the conceptual guy who came up with all the concepts. I was still touring with Diodato, who did Space Odyssey 2001. That's uh, Omir Diodato, and I was also working with Patty LaBelle, and I was also working with now Rogers and Sheep. Ah, please go. We are family. And and now, just get lucky. lucky. So I worked at Niles with recordings with him for 40 years, and I was a member of Sheep. Uh, in our houses and sheep for 15 years uh, until my oh, wife got ill. Yeah, oh yeah, I did it for oh. 15 years until my wife got ill and uh, her cancer went to stage four and we moved to Hawaii uh, for seven oh, years sorry. and now I'm back. So that's why I'm back on the East Coast. Back, I live in Sarasota, Florida, but I'm back to New York all the time because this is where I have the juice and connections. And since I've gotten back from Hawaii, you know, you go to Hawaii, out of sight, out of mind, everybody thinks you're retired. No, I'm not retired. I got a lot more to say. So is, is she okay? We're going to say a lot more. Oh, yes, thank you. It's when it's a total remission. We became vegetarians and vegans and just stuck to that program. And, you know, we yeah. changed every cell in her body over a course of five to seven years. And 
went into remission and she's doing great. She looks fantastic. You can never tell that she had, you know, mastectomy and oh, flatlined once, almost died and, you know, went through oh, chemo and radiation for years. Anyway, you know, here we are. This is, this is in 2000 and now we're here in 2019, going to 2020. 20 years she's been, uh, fantastic. Know. Yeah. So fantastic. we're very, you know, we're, we're blessed. We're happy. And, uh, I'm going to work with the Jimi Hendrix Foundation. I'm the executive director of entertainment for the foundation. And I'm also the senior vice president of entertainment for the Canadian chapter, which is the Jimi Hendrix Family Foundation. Uh-huh. Now, uh, both those websites are in construction now because our our website, GoDaddy website, was suppressed by the foundation. You know, it just got ugly for no reason because all we yeah. want to do is do some philanthropic work, you know, build a park. They built a park uh, earlier on, you know, in Jimmy's name. We're going to do courses. I did that in, in Hawaii. I, I uh, created musical courses. One of them is called The Business of Show to show students at all levels from, especially in the, uh, you know, um, middle school because they get the least amount, least amount of attention from the K to, mm-hmm. you know, the six and from nine to 12, that's when they get the most attention. So we focused on the sixth grade to eight, sixth, seventh and eighth grade before you go into high school. Plus, and then we did a high school, then we did a college. My point is we put together programs which went very well. I want to institute them with the Jimi Hendrix Foundation and take it to these ideas to new levels and raise a lot of awareness and we want to build a facility in uh, first in uh, L.A., California, and then one in New York. So we'll have our New York, and I'll probably run the New York-based one. And the our CEO and fearless leader, Joe Rajagnoli, Rajagnolo, excuse me, Rajagnolo, will be um, our CEO, will be handling the Los Angeles and San Diego offices. So it's, you know, it's a climb right now. We're asking people to donate to the Jimmy. Hendrix Foundation, and that the proceeds of that will go into the work that we're doing, and you know, supporting live music around the country. That is our endeavor, and that's really our mission statement. So uh, we're going to be at both the 9th, 10th, and 11th, 16th, 17th, and 18th in North Carolina. Then we're going to be in Tuxedo Park, New York, September 14th, with Corey Glover from Living Color, Tito Puente Jr., Gerardo Velez, with Christine. Capolino, this incredible girl guitarist, female guitar player, who is amazing. She's better mm. than most guy guitar players. And she's a prodigy. I've been working with her since she's 13 years old. The girl is amazing. Oh, wow. And one of the nicest people you want to meet. So I'm working with her, and then they just brought on um, Reverend Jones, who's a very well-known guy, and some other people. So, And then we're going to jam. So it's going to be very cool. And if you can, come on up to Tuxedo Park. It's a beautiful park. It's going to be heading towards the end of summer, just be a crisp, you know, fall day at the end of summer. So come on out, everyone, anyone that's in the New York City area, if you're in the North Carolina area, come to Saloon Studios Live and frequent the place because we're going to be doing events there on a regular basis. We just had DJ Thomas there one, one month. Oh, wow. The next month we had the Fabulous Thunderbirds. So all these groups, there's going to be a different group every month. And then... So, since we built the stage after the whole Woodstock hoopla, we're going to do outdoor events until it gets too cold in North Carolina. And then and it doesn't really get super cold there. It doesn't really snow that often, but it does get chilly. So it'll be more the indoor venue, I believe. 
who knows, but uh, there's going to be a number of events next year in 2020 that will be at least 50 events outdoors. That could be two each weekend. Who knows? But it'll be at least That's 50 huge. events. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're building that complex. So as I said, there's 800 acres. Uh, it rests really on just a minimal amount of acreage right now. But, you know, that acreage is amazing. And, uh, you know, now we, we can hold about 4,000 people comfortably. But eventually, That's if nice. that seems to be the outdoor venue seems to be the way to go and we bring a lot of attention to this place, then we'll, you know, probably make something because the acreage is there and uh, it's easy enough. So what's going on with me? That's what's going on with the Jimi Hendrix Foundation. You know, if you go to GerardoVelez.com and that's G-E-R-A-R-D-O, V as in Victor, E-L-E-Z as in Zebra.com, GerardoVelez.com. Thank you, little drummer girl, for letting me do that. Give my plug. Back. Oh, are you kidding? That's awesome. I'm going to actually put up all of those links in the show notes. Thank guys. you. So you will not, if you didn't have a pen to write that down, have no fear. So let me Thank ask you. you this question. Yes. Are you ready for the 11-stroke roll rapid fire interview? Yeah, yes. Please, go. <laughs> all right. Your favorite food? Italian. Your favorite pastime? Music. Your favorite brand of percussion? Latin percussion, LP. Car or motorcycle? Car. Your favorite curse word? Fuck. <laughs> Your favorite person to hang out with? My wife. Would there be one album that you couldn't live without if you were on a deserted island? No, you know, people have asked me that all the time. What's your favorite album if you want to? I, I don't know. Earth, Wind, and Fire or James Brown or Bob Dylan or, you know, it depends. It really depends. You know, music is mood. Music is mood. You know, sometimes if you're melancholy, you want to hear Bob Dylan crying. And when right. you're happy, you want to hear, you know, uh, Will I Am doing you know, something Khan. with the black or Shaka Khan or the black IPs, you know. Or any of those artists that we're talking about, or any of the great country artists. I mean, there's so much talent out there. And people say, oh, nobody's making good music anymore, all this hip-hop and rap crap. Yeah, there's a lot yeah, of people man. making great music, right? Don't you agree? Great music. Absolutely. Yeah. There's always still great music. Now, what oh, I don't man. like is all the derogatory stuff that's been added from, you know, with, hit, with rap especially, which, you know, we elevated women's rights, we elevated, you know, a lot of things that now have been, you know, dragged down, and that's that. Yeah. I'm not comfortable with that. So your next question. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. okay, that's okay. If you could play with anyone, live or not, who would it be? Oh my God! Uh, if I could play with anyone, uh, out of many of the people that I wanted to play with, I've been fortunate enough to play with all of them except James Brown. I play with Stevie mm. Wonder. I play with you know, Tana. I play with you know, uh, oh, wow, um, Dizzy Gillespie. Are you playing with BB wow. King? And you know these guys oh, that wow. you know BB King was Mr. Blue. So you know I was with oh, the yeah. biggest blues guys. How do you you know you don't get any better than him? Dizzy Gillespie. You know he's the father of bebop, and also he played congas, and he and I had a great relationship. He did. Oh yeah, I he also taught percussion. Oh yeah, yeah. He loved to play. He wasn't a great player, but he could play a little bit, you know, and he, he was funny. So he would make it like, you know, hey, I, I'm going to play congas now, so you better run for cover, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> 
I used to do uh, music licensing when I worked at MCA Music Publishing, and we did a deal. Uh, he was on his deathbed at the time, and I had a conference call with him, his attorney, and it was like, I think it was an iced tea song that they were using. or And, you know, the guy was cursing, and then I'm thinking, I'm so embarrassed, but I, I was going to tell him, like, they couldn't have the license until they, they sanitized the song or whatever, but I'm thinking, I'm on the phone with Dizzy Gillespie. But anyway, I'm sorry about that. Uh, no, no, that's a good, you know, look, you know, we're sharing, we're sharing thoughts here and that, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, rekindle some of your own thoughts. So next question. Thank you. Your favorite sure. travel spot. Oh, my favorite travel spot. It's not a spot. It's a, uh, uh, I love Europe. I love going around Europe. Uh, I spent most of my life, you know, well, 50 years of traveling, most of my life mm-hmm. I spent in the air at 35,000 feet. Uh, so, you know, Barcelona, now it's overran, but when, when I went there, uh, you know, in the 90s, and it was just, it, and that was a jump off place. You know, you had Gauguin, you have, uh, Gaudi, you have, uh, Rodin, you have, you know, incredible oh, yeah. art, you have, uh, uh, they also do, you know, incredible furniture there. They do, you know, music, of course, everywhere. It's just it's just a, a jumping point into the Mediterranean because I spent a lot of time in Italy and I spent a lot, you know, I've seen people raise their kids and their kids have kids. That's how many, you know, going back every year to a place. Nice. You build a family of friends and, and their kids and all oh, the kids, look at that, well, they have their own kids now, isn't that great, you know? And these are people really you grow is. old with. Yeah, as you tour. So that's another hard question. You know, okay. being, yeah, having lived in Hawaii and, you know, travel around the Orient, you know, what, how do you, you can't get better beaches. You know, I've been to the best yeah. beaches in the world and, mm. you know, they're just different. You know, you can go to Australia and New Zealand, find impeccable beaches, oh, yeah. but you can go to Costa Rica, you know, you can go all over and there's beautiful beaches everywhere. So, you know, you know, pick your joy, pick your joy. <laughs> right? uh, one thing that no one really knows about you. Yeah. Uh, that I am easily, or I was easily disturbed if someone rejected my music. Not like, hey man, I don't, you don't like the fact that you don't like my music, dude. Uh, oh, listen, I got it. Oh, um, hold on one second. Hold on <laughs> one second. Hello? Yes. Okay, I'm so sorry about that, but no, that's, that's the guy, okay. you know, Polestar magazine? Yeah. Yeah, for the industry, they're going to interview me, but I did CNN and I did all the people and now I'm doing the little drummer girl. So my life is complete. (laughs) (laughs) I I used to be very sensitive because I have, you know, I'm a big stage guy. I have a lot of bravado. People say, oh, this guy is fearless. Yes, I am fearless. But if people that I love say something like, wow, that song really sucks. You're singing sucks. It'd be like, "Mm." that would affect me more than the 500,000 other things that I did well. But, you know, I've got over that. You got to thicken your skin, and my skin was a little too thin at that time. Next, <laughs> okay. next question. We all have, we all have something. Um, yeah. Your biggest pet peeves? My biggest pet peeves are ignorance, intimidation, and people who don't have empathy for other people, people who don't have compassion for other people. That infuriates me because those people do not, they don't have depth of field. They're not, you know, they're not highly evolved uh, souls. And, you know, th- those people are, and I have to protect people. I feel I'm a protector of those around me. 
who may be less fortunate, maybe not as strong or as smart or, or whatever, end up being, you know, what we call bullying today. I mean, bullying, mm-hmm. the whole bullying thing is kind of ridiculous, but we call that a right of passage. <laughs> yeah, if somebody beats you up in the schoolyard, you, you lick your wounds, you go home, and you don't tell your parents. They're the right. last you people you would tell. you kick their butt back. <laughs> yeah. And deal with it, you know, and if you can't, you grow up and say, all right, I'm not a fighter, but I'm smarter than that. You figure yourself out. The mother of invention, you know, that builds character. Those are character lines that we're not letting our our young people develop. Uh, you know, so anyway, we, that's another conversation. That's next a whole another conversation. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, that was the end of that. So thank you for playing that. I appreciate that. Thank you. My pleasure. So let me just ask you this because our time is almost up. What would yeah. you say were some words and pearls of wisdom that you can give to those out there listening to us this evening that who are looking to break into the business? What would you tell them? Yeah. I don't care how much talent you have. You don't need that much talent. If you have drive, determination, you stay strong and you stay focused, you can have a career, not only in business, but in anything that you do. The thing with us is that We use the part of our brain that's not analytical. You must learn how to use the left side as well as your creative right side of the brain. And that's what school teaches us. It helps us to use the left side of the brain for more analytical stuff and the more creative abstract stuff for the right side of the brain. So teach yourself that. Also, breathing is very, very important. If you're a drummer and you bang your drums at the end of the night, Make sure you put your hands in some ice. Ice your hands after the gig. Breathe deeply before the gig. Stretch your body. Stretch all your ligaments, your tendons. Do deep knee bends, back bends. Do those physical things because when you sit on the drum kit, your lower back and spine are going to collect all the tension that you have when you're playing drums because your whole body rests on your coccyx when you're playing drums. So you have to be very cognizant of that. As a drummer, a guitar player has to be very aware of his strap and how it hangs on his shoulder because you get pinched nerves in your neck, you start to get uh, pinched uh, nerves in your arms, carpal tunnel develops. I had carpal tunnel. I broke my back. I broke my wrist because I danced on stage. I, and then I had a carpal tunnel operation and a wrist operation. And my right hand is partially fused. I can't move it like my left hand. So I've learned how uh, for an economy of uh, energy on stage, although it looks like I'm really going crazy, but you learn how to focus. And one of the most important things is being able to get into that space. When, you know, when you're a professional writer and they say, okay, write a, a song about a donut, you have to go in there and go, oh, I do that in a second. You know, donuts are oh, my favorite little treat. Sugar, baby, that's me. You know, something, you know, and then you go off and you go off and you're jamming, you're mentally jamming, you're mentally jamming on ideas. That, to me, is the essence of the creative process. But if you don't have drive and determination and you only have skills, do not, I repeat, do not become a professional musician. There are other things. You can become an engineer. You can become a manager. You can become a tour manager. You can be around the music business if you if so want to. But being an actual musician is a complete release and risk. It's a total risk, and you're burying your soul, and there's other people that are going to be in control of everything if you don't know how to defend yourself, not only legally, but, you know, and keeping your spiritual mentality, spiritual depth healthy, your mental clarity by 
training, working out on your off days, always stretching the body throughout the course of the day and deep breathing through your nose, exhaling through your mouth, using your head cavity as much as you can to suck in the air, exaggerate the nostrils going up into your air. This is what yogis do in India for thousands of years to get as much blood through the system with nice pure oxygen to give you fantastic thoughts and developmental ability. So that's what I tell musicians. That's part of my course of wellness for my company that will soon be that I'm just launching called V Strong Fit. V Strong Fit. And the V stands for victory or bliss, but mainly for victory. It's your victory in life to understand your own weaknesses, your own vulnerabilities, and accent your gifts. And uh, we all have to do that, you know, because none of us are good in everything. Sorry. Exactly. And everything is a learning curve, you know, and nothing is, yes, is unlearnable. Yeah. I mean, we can learn everything, yeah. which I find so amazing because it's like, oh, I, yeah. I don't know how to build a website. Guess what? I'm going to learn how to build a website. Yeah. I don't know how to do this again. I'll learn how to do it. Uh-huh. And and that's I love what you said about determination because I think people, when they get that rejection, I just did a, yeah. an episode uh, on rejection because I find that when I used to model and dance and go in theater and I was, you know, auditioning, it was so horrible when you would get rejected and you'd want to like crawl, oh. crawl up and end it and that's it, it's over and I don't want to do this anymore. But I had to keep right. pushing myself to do it. And I feel like if people don't give up and they just stick it through, like you said, with the spiral gyro, the 16 labels denied it, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, but you guys wind up being on top. So. Yeah, but we were stupid and young. We were young and stupid. We were young and stupid, and we thought we could conquer the world. Today, I'd go, we rejected by 16 labels, guys. Let's move on to something else, you know? That's what I would do now. But no, you know, look at the the guy from uh, KFC. I mean, I I heard he, uh, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, he Uh he went through a thousand and one no's before he got his yes for his recipe. Well, there you go. And so he just kept doing it. I mean, he just kept doing there it because he go. had faith in it, and he knew, like, that's it. You got to yeah. have faith. And even when it looks <laughs> like it's at its worst, yeah, yeah. the next mm-hmm. day it could be the best thing since well, the spread. So you just got to hang in there, right? Well, I know we have a storm going out there, so I don't know if we lost Mr. Velez. I will try to get him back on the line. In the meantime, if you haven't picked up the copy of the 151 Musically Inspired Secrets book yet, please go to the website, www.littledrummergirl.com. That's L-A-L-Drummergirl.com forward slash book. And it will be released in a couple of weeks. So please get your copy. I know you're going to love it. And especially if you like things that are going to help inspire you, this book should do that for you and also help you get organized and find your purpose because you know there's a lot of things we do out there and we kind of float around sometimes because this is going to help streamline that for you and make it crystal clear for what you need to be doing next so thank you again my drumsters for listening if you like this episode please share the love it really means a lot to me and remember it's never too late to begin the life of your dreams and leave a trailblazing behind you so rock on and rock out and i'll catch you on the flip side